Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back everyone in the room and on Zoom. Today, as I said, we have the good fortune of hearing from Hanei Rivera, one of our different speakers. And on the topic of intimacy and dharma, Renee Rivera is a meditation teacher, restorative justice facilitator, and leader, working and learning in all the spaces between race, gender, and other perceived binaries as a queer, mixed race, trans man. Renee teaches heart-centered trauma and foreign meditation at each big meditation center and other meditation centers. He has co-led the residential meditation retreats for transgender, non-binary, and gender expensive people. And he is a restorative justice facilitator for the Ahimsa Collective, working to heal sexual and gender-based violence. Welcome, Okay. Well, um, good to be here with you all again. Um, I I'm sorry to report that Daigon is not going to be able to join us today as planned. We had planned to have a dialogue, a Dharma dialogue today with you all. Um, but Daigon, Daigon got sick coming back from Austin. He has COVID. Mm. And so he is, even yesterday we were planning he'd be on Zoom and I would be here, but no. <laughs> He's really not feeling well today, so he is resting, and I invite us all to send him our metta and good wishes for him to feel better as soon as possible and to have as much ease and rest today as possible. So, sending out our good wishes towards Daigon. Um, so, we're going to have a kind of an emergent conversation today because... The plans, our plans changed. Um, and so, you know, well, um, I have plenty to say on this topic, so no shortage of things to say. <laughs> and also, I wanted to, as we get started, um, actually check in with all of you. Many of you have been here for the last two Sundays. I do see a few new faces. So for those folks who are just coming into the conversation today, um, hang in there. I'm sure the conversation will go in all the places it needs to go. But I wanted to actually start out and see if there are questions or reflections from the last two Sundays. You know, two weeks ago, Daigon shared on this practice of intimacy with ourselves. And last Sunday, I shared around the practice of bringing our mindfulness to our relationships or relational practice. And, um, and I know 
last Sunday when we ended, there were still more questions that we didn't get to, didn't get to, um, just because of time. So I just wanted to start here with all of you. Like, what's been alive for you in this conversation we've been having? Are there questions that are still present from last week or things that have come up in between? You know, questions or things that you, you know, would like to share with the group. So I just want to, yeah, have a little time for questions as we get started. And then I'll go into some of the things I was planning to share. Yeah. Well, my name's Ty. And six years ago, I had a really bad accident. It was awful. Um, I was a bike rider, did the eighth life cycle ride three times, and I was training for my fourth time. And I hit a pole in the road in Oakland and came off my bike at like seven foot and hit on my head, landed on my head. Was in a coma for a month. And so I feel like in a lot of ways it's been like a rebirth of being it's been back up. I mean the doctors gave me a one in ten chance to live, even so. But I feel like it's been kind of natural rebirth of myself and so this whole process of intimacy, I'm like, what do you mean there are other people in the world? I mean, I guess I felt very much like it's the emergence of a child into adulthood, realizing there are other people. And so I've had some issues with family members around the ways that I'm perceived. And I think that's fundamental to how I've been. And this whole conversation on intimacy has been the opening up of that part of me and to like, oh, there are other people and they have feelings that are different from mine. Mm. And I, there should be some reason I should honor that. Mm. That has been new. Is do you recommend a way that I can, I mean, I guess I can practice that going out in the world, not dealing with other people. But is it a, a practice that you recommend that I do or another way I can explore it? Mm. Yeah. Poof, I'm just really like feeling that, you know, just huge transformation that happened in your life. And yes. I, I love that you've described it as a rebirth. Yeah. You know, and um, like I think first I'm curious, like what an incredible you know, place to practice with, like, relearning so many things and um, just with these bodies and their impermanence, um, <coughs> our mortality, you know, it sounds like you've been very intimate with some of the parts of our experience that we often have the luxury to ignore. Yeah. Um, so I first want to say, like, it sounds like you're right there <laughs> mm -hmm. in the practice of intimacy with life. Yeah. You know, and I think this is one of the topics I was really thinking about coming in today is like, you know, how are we in intimacy with all of life that includes, you know, injury, illness, old age, death. All of that is right here in our changing bodies. Um, you know, it's like I wish I had like time to ask you all kinds of questions about what your experience was like and what you discovered in those, you know, but I, I think I want to almost put the mirror back to say like, 
you know, well, there's so much uh, in your experience. It was kind of like growing up again. I mean, I was very inwardly focused, very much like, it's about me, it's about me. And I was in the hospital for a year, so mm. everything's about you there. Yeah. They come, they take your temperature, they... Well, I had a tracheotomy and a feeding tube, so I started from that. Mm. So everything was about me, and I think it's turning that back around. I mean, I'm learning to walk now, and I just came here, and <clears throat> so walking has been hard, and it's kind of like growing up again, and just understanding that, and we turn that from inward look, where mm. it's been for the last six years, into looking outward into the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting to think about now you're in a developmental stage yeah. and that, like, we all, as children, have this really, like, healthy... You might call it, like, healthy narcissism or a healthy, like, self-regard yeah. um, or self-focus. And then there's a time of, like, oh, and there's other people and how do I start developing empathy and... Um, Connection and and so like yeah, just bringing just the part that we talked about last week of actually bringing our mindfulness both to ourselves and to others, and in particular perhaps in this cultivation of empathy, like what how do we bring our curiosity to others? What is this person? Um, can I hear what's going on with them? Can I ask them curious questions? Like, oh, I hear you might be feeling frustrated with me right now. Did I get that right? Um, you know, kind of bringing that kind of curiosity into your relationships yeah. and the empathy, cultivation of empathy. Yeah, I had a big issue with my sister, and like I've been cleaning her backyard, raking and blowing it. And she used to have the hose that's out in her backyard, and I've been coiling it back up. And my sister's like, leave the frickin' hose where it is. <laughs> and it's been kind of a big issue, and I've kind of thought, well, she really just wants me to put it back so it's in the right place. And no, she wants me to clean up if I feel like cleaning up, but she wants me to leave the hose alone. So I finally understood that, and been kind of awakening to other people wanting different things than you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know where the hose should go. <laughs> I mean, it looks perfect because not a tripping hazard and all that stuff, but this person who actually owns the house wants it in a certain way, and I should honor that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love you just calling it, that's an awakening right there. Is, you know, whatever my views, what are her... What are her needs, and how can I honor those, and just be aware that she has that those she has needs that are different and views that are different than mine. Well, and I think I'm actually gonna. Let it all happen. Yeah, um, and I'm curious. I want to just see if there's other, you know, other folks who have questions and shares. And thank you so much. Yes. Just to sort of add on because I bear witness to a similar situation with my late partner who got mm -hmm. hit by a bicycle and a skull fracture, but it was an open mm -hmm. thing, so we just had to even sit on the brain so there wasn't as much damage. Mm -hmm. 
acute and he had an underlying, when he came back to live with me, had an underlying condition of a panic disorder. Mm. What was curious was during the period of you know seizure precautions and stuff, once he got discharged, because he only stayed at the general for about a month and a half. But and it was touch and go, of course, at the beginning, just like you, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I was there for a year. Yeah. But what was interesting, because he had a uh, panic disorder, mm-hmm. what was interesting was he could sort of feel each layer of ability slowly come back. And it was just a wonderment to him that he was, number one, really peaceful. And the very last thing after about five months, and after he got off to Latin, the last thing that came back was panic disorder. Mm. So there was this whole realm of him and abilities and calmness that was sort of deep-seated in his brain Mm -hmm. on top of that little witness that you always sort of have, you know, even while you're dreaming that um, may have the abilities to help guide Mm. and make choices in a semi-rational way. But it also, because of a lot of brain injuries, um, there's not as much dampening when an emotion arises or erupts. So uh, me as a witness, I just had to go like, it's not me. Mm-hmm. He's just exploding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's um, it was a, it's a very unusual path, and and that rediscovery of, of self that Steve had and me reacting to him mm-hmm. was the same. Yeah. Yeah, it's like what so much to notice and learn about our minds and bodies in these, in these, you know, like heavenly messengers of injury and illness and changes. I'm thinking also of if people are familiar with Eugene Cash. Eugene Cash is a teacher at San Francisco Insight um, who actually had two bicycle crashes and uh, pretty severe um, brain injury as well. And I'm curious, I don't actually know whether he's talked about it in Dharma Talks, but I imagine that he has. I don't know if folks are... Anyway, just something to maybe to check out whether Eugene has talks about that on Dharma Seed or elsewhere, because he's really gone through that whole recovery process as well, and with all of his practice and insight. Yeah. Yes. I appreciate it. And um, thanks for coming today. Uh, I missed the first talk last year, last week, but, uh, and last week, um, how I phrase it. So I, I'm also right now doing a wise communication workshop, mm-hmm. a communication workshop with Orange Sofa. Yeah. And so I'm really hyper aware of what I'm saying, how the, the things that we talked mm-hmm. about last week. And, um, when I came back from five weeks in Barcelona, where I was in total mellow, like vacation mode, no monkey mind, just another, mm-hmm. came back and instantly the monkey mind kicked back in. And I had a friend staying with me who had been in my apartment the whole time mm-hmm. with her very special needs dog. 
Mm. And um, so this whole, for the entire last week, it was like me wanting to erupt, but like stopping and just recognizing the deep compassion that my friend has for this dog. And noticing how I have almost zero compassion. (laughs) And so I had to like really think about not just what I said, but like my facial expressions, Mm. my body language, my you know, I was aware of like I'm at my computer and the dog moves on like you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, hey, I'm the boy. <laughs> um, anyway, so I guess just to say that, like, your talk and this thing is like really like it's being hyper aware of it. Uh, that's like the first step, I guess. So what's next? You know, it's like the, the awareness. Like, mm-hmm. then what's the next action? Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for the action. Like, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so that's what's up for me. Like, yeah. Um. Yeah, I'll uh, go ahead and then I'll... It was somewhat a response (laughs) to your question through my lens. Uh, I was uh, uh, in spiritual group for 15 years and one of the main practices was to observe um, yourself and be aware of what's going on and sort of analyze where it comes from, what causes what, and be sort of detached and be that witness and it was useful to learn all those things about myself. And at some point I realized that I was stuck in that position of weakness. Like you're asking, what's the next thing to do about action? Even that question, uh, my discovery was that it's not like I have to do something in action, which often implied that I was not good enough, I was not spiritual enough, I was not awakened, there was something wrong with me, Mm -hmm. I was asleep, I had to wake up, I had to uh, be loving and compassionate, but it had that judgment feeling which (laughs) traces back to my parents who were judging me. I was just, instead of saying, oh, you have to grow up and uh, be successful, I was saying, you have to grow up and be spiritual. That there was this harsh attitude towards myself that I'm still a bad boy who never going to please mommy and daddy, but now spiritual that I internalize inside. And it's not the action in outside that I have to grow, change, or do, but it's kind of a stepping back and compassion, loving, and accepting myself. And to the degree that I can accept myself, then I can accept and be compassionate to other people. Yeah. And I'm still kind of often skipping through that <laughs> next step, but I realize that I cannot get jump over it and get to something else and uh, without fully accepting and uh, compassionately loving whatever it is first. And then maybe something will change, but only after full <laughs> process. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much. I, what I'm appreciating just like the ways that this, like bringing our attention to our relationships, even the relationship with the dog is like, oh, there's so much rich material here for our practice. Like when we turn our practice towards these moments with the hose or the dog or whatever it is, wow, there's so much 
to um, so much here to work with. And then, um, yeah, I love what you're bringing in about noticing, even within our, like, bringing our awareness and our attention to these moments of difficulty, that there's still more layers there of our conditioning. And maybe particularly our conditioning around wanting to be a good person in that moment, or wanting to do it right, or wanting to have you know the right reaction or the spiritual reaction. And that's been a real this piece of how even within my practice these conditions um, of trying to get it right, of um, being a good practitioner. Um, practicing enough or practicing in the right ways, all of these things show up. It all shows up here. And, um, and then is it possible with all of that to still like just come back to ourselves um, and meet ourselves with compassion um, first? Can we meet ourselves even in those moments of reactivity, when we're angry, um, frustrated we maybe see ourselves as being too reactive and we bring that that um, come back to that intimacy that Daigon talked about with ourselves um, and I think one of my places of practice because of being a teacher and facilitator one of the places I really try to bring my presence and awareness are actually to the moments when I make mistakes and have an impact on someone else when I'm teaching often that's like um, maybe something that I have been afraid of like oh you know I'm you know if I'm holding retreats like people are so in such a tender spot I have this responsibility and I might say something that triggers somebody and so can I even bring that compassion to those moments when I do those things? When I do say something unskillful or um, use the wrong pronouns for somebody or whatever it might be, in that moment, you know, I can notice all of the shame that arises, the contraction, the fear, the maybe wanting to fix the situation. But in all of that, can I also just first come and attend to myself? and um, really meet myself with all of that. And sh for me, shame is one of the most difficult feelings to just be with and just, can I even just be intimate with that, with the shame that arises when I make a mistake? And um, like care for, I often think of it as like a much younger part of myself that feels like, um, Afraid, like it'll be ostracized or someone will be mad at me or whatever those things. Can I just stop and care for that part of me? And then from that place, turn to the person who I might have impacted and really be present with their experience. Um, and like attend to that, whatever needs to happen there. Maybe it's just listening and being present. Maybe it's an apology, who knows. But can I just like care for myself and then turn to the other person. Um, so, yeah, just thanks for all of that. That's been prompted there. So, yeah, if there's nothing else right now, I will go ahead and go into some of the things I was thinking about. Um, 
which we've already started to touch on in the questions. And I think one of them is like, um, you know, as we talked about first this piece of our intimacy with ourselves and our practice, then bringing in how we're bringing that that practice, awareness, intimacy into our relationships with others. You know, I just wanted to kind of complete that circle for me um, in addition to that focus on, you know, really being present with myself, having intimacy with myself, with others who I'm in relationship with. I also practice in a very kind of... Um, it was a regular part of my practice also to be touching into my connection and intimacy with the earth and the natural world, as well as what I think of as kind of the unseen world of deities, guides, ancestors. So just to like, for me, this piece about, um, about really cultivating intimacy in my daily practice, it is actually... Um, like cultivating a sense of connection in all of these directions. Um, and so, you know, often what is this practice of just like being in intimacy with the earth is, um, you know, bringing my awareness many times a day just to the, that this, I'm in this body and this body is connected to the earth. Like that I can actually tune into the sense of gravity, which is this great earth body, like holding me close. And that that is also for me a relationship of intimacy. And I also grew up in, you know, with uh, being able to spend a lot of my time in nature. And it was really the place that I felt safe and held. And that relationship has carried for me through my life. And so that for me is a very important relationship of intimacy. Um, and one that I'm also really cultivating and cultivating like also a listening to the earth and how I might be in more relationship there. Um, and so that could be like a whole other talk. <laughs> but I just want to mention that it's an important part of my practice as well as um, in more recent years, um, a lot of practice, doing more Vajrayana practice and specifically working with deities, um, working with mantras, um, and more work at, like I have an altar at home where it's a place where I can really kind of bring my practice, whether it's working with deities or ancestors, and do and more and more um, cultivating a practice of prayer, which we often I feel like don't talk as much about in um, our Western convert Buddhist spaces, but is very much a part of the practices as they're held, you know, kind of within global Buddhism um, and in the. Um, you know, the cultural Buddhist practices as they've originated in India and Nepal and spread across Asia. So, um, yeah, so I've been sort of connecting with more of that practice, and I feel like this practice of prayer um, is another kind of intimacy. And um, I love a quote from... Come, come to me from in a moment. I'll say the quote first, and hopefully the writer who wrote it will come to me or someone will remember. 
So it says, she said, there's only two prayers. There's help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. And, yes. <laughs> um, thank you, Anne Lamont. And so I just like, that's a kind of intimacy also, that we're in this intimate relationship with whatever in the unseen world we are relating to as something bigger than ourselves. Um, and that might be, um, you know, it might be relating to God or deities or um, the mystery, um, but whatever that is, that we're in that relationship. That relationship of prayer for me is another relationship of intimacy. So I often just think of myself as, you know, this human body in this human realm here between the earth and the sky. And so for me, that is like constantly bringing my attention to that I am, I am like connected with the earth and like held within this unseen world or this mystery or the cosmos or however you might hold. So that, that for me is really like, um, sort of completes what I think of as my practice of intimacy on in a moment-to-moment, day-to-day kind of way. And a part of that as well over the last some years is I like to, in my own practices, kind of ask this question, is this practice bringing greater aliveness into me or less aliveness? And this piece around aliveness to me is also connected with this intimacy with everything and all of life. Am I noticing that as I practice um, that there's kind of more awakening in my whole awareness, uh, mostly that being my body, that being the thing I'm most aware of, um, and am I continuing to practice things that bring more aliveness into me, more um, of a sense of being really connected to my body and my sensations at all times. Um, and I think this kind of gets connects with this piece around how we notice our conditioning arising even within our spiritual practices. And are there ways that whether we've been brought up, you know, within Christianity or just in this capitalist world or in different kind of um, cultures, families to use our practice in some way to shut down some part of ourselves or are we using our practice to bring more of ourselves alive and so this kind of connects back for me with the topic of desire that we were talking about a little bit last week desire and pleasure and um, if folks aren't Folks may all be familiar with this already. Um, Mark Epstein wrote this book, Open to Desire, that really investigates this question of, um, you know, how are we bringing our, how is desire a part of our practice? What is there that we can learn through bringing our awareness or mindfulness to our desires? And how does that, um, I think, in his own language, he kind of also speaks to this piece of are we really um, including desire within our practice, which we can notice, he points out, we can notice brings 
again, this aliveness into our practice. Um, and so he talks about, you know, the, this is the Buddha created this middle path between, you know, at the time, a culture that had this very pleasure-seeking aspect to it. So the Buddha, you know, grew up as a, you know, aristocrat where he was offered every pleasure that he could possibly want, um, lacked for nothing, and that was so much of what he was sort of invited. That was what his life was about, was how could he have as much pleasure as possible? And then he chose to go forth and, and followed a very ascetic renunciate path where he almost died because he was, you know, eating only one grain of rice a day and depriving his body in every possible way, really almost torturing the body through depriving it of its basic needs. And he saw that that was not the path to enlightenment and then found this middle way after folks are familiar with this beautiful piece of the story where he um, encounters... Um, this woman, Sujatha, who makes an offering of um, cure or rice milk to him and like nourishes, brings this nourishing, um, pleasurable food into his body that helps him actually be sustained to then go to the Bodhi tree and sit down and take his seat to find enlightenment. So when he comes, you know, when he comes um, after his enlightenment and begins to teach, I think a lot of the teachings that we do receive still seem to lean upon this side of um, renunciation, of because so much of it is about monastic life, which is a renunciate life. Uh, but there is also this piece around... Um, that we include um, meeting our needs, including desire and pleasure. And so um, in this, um, in the book by Mark Epstein, he talks about this as the right-hand path, the renunciate path, and the left-hand path, which includes pleasure and desire. Um, What was the part of here that I was going to read to you? <laughs> um, well, I, okay, I'm not going to read it. But just to say that, you know, that he, that in this, you know, the first teaching of the, first, of the Four Noble Truths, um, that this first truth, that there is unsatisfactoriness, and then the second noble truth that what kind of leads to this suffering or unsatisfactoriness is uh, the word that actually translates as thirst. Um, so thirst or craving or clinging, but sometimes it's also translated as desire. And so Mark Epstein is just really pointing out that that's not um, what the Buddha was talking about and that there's actually, within his teachings, that really a place for desire, but also an invitation to notice that our desires might not always lead to pleasure or satisfaction, that we might find ourselves caught in loops of um, 
maybe more compulsive cravings or thirsts or, desi- or desires or just the clinging to things to be, to stay as they are, the way that we want them. Um, and that, um, so is there a way to think about we're not getting rid of desire, we're just noticing, noticing that we have desires and what happens when that desire is met or not met. Um, so it's more of an invitation simply to notice that, um, that there's a gap, you know, that there's a gap between our desires and, full, and fulfillment or satisfaction and that that's that unsatisfactoriness. And we could get exactly what we want and still be in that place of unsatisfactoriness and still notice that we're, you know, that it never stays that, you know, the pleasure, we might have a desire for something, receive it, feel the pleasure, and notice that that is fleeting. You know, it never stays. And the repeating of the loop doesn't always even result in the same pleasure as we experienced the first time. So noticing that this is just so elusive. And I think, you know, it's interesting in the times that we're in right now where anything that we want in the world can be, um, can be delivered the click of a button and arrives in a cardboard box on the next day on our doorstep. Um, is really an opportunity to notice that when we get <laughs> what we want, it doesn't always result in satisfaction. And that the getting, you know, and there might be an impulse to get more, get more, get more, and that doesn't result in more satisfaction. It doesn't result in more pleasure. So we're in a, in a very interesting place to observe. There's probably never been in human history, except for maybe the life of the Buddha as he grew up in that palace where we could get so much of what we think that we want and notice that we're no happier for it, that there's no more satisfaction there. Um, So just, I think, the the piece that I want to point to is is like um, noticing that there is desire and that there is... I think no benefit in trying to override our desires or shut them down or make them be quiet because they are a part of who we are. And also we can notice that they don't always lead to, they don't always connect it with pleasure or satisfaction. We can also notice when do we experience pleasure and satisfaction and sometimes it's at a moment when we haven't been um, seeking anything, you know? Like I just noticed yesterday, I was walking around. It's just a beautiful day in Oakland, and I noticed just the incredible pleasure of the warm air against my skin. You know, I didn't go outside seeking that experience, and there it was, and it felt so good. It just felt so good, and it wasn't in any way tied to desire or seeking. And at other times, the desires and just feels. Um, I might be filled up with the desire for a certain connection um, or a certain kind of relationship or a certain kind of, um, you know, touch or a person like listening to me in just the way that I like or asking me just the kind of questions that I like. All of that may be there 
and um, and it is kind of just just that it's just the desire and the longing which doesn't always connect to getting the thing often when we receive the exact thing that we are desiring it is it, it's already we're already like moved on into another place where it doesn't get it does it never feels the way it does when we're desiring it um, so there's also this an invitation in um, and the way that Mark Epstein is talking about desire to also notice um, that there's like there's a place of longing there's like within us there's a place of longing that he argues in some ways is always a spiritual longing so and can we notice like how that shows up even within our desires or the places where we might even be caught in kind of a loop we might notice even like in the impulse to go on you know an app or to try and meet someone new um, or hook up with someone or even just chat whatever it is can we notice within that that there might be actually a deep spiritual longing for connection but that deep spiritual longing for connection might be showing up in a kind of uh, a loop that we have gotten into of seeking through desire that doesn't always bring the thing that we're longing for. So it's just another place to notice that the desire doesn't always connect to a pleasure or satisfaction, but we also might notice a place of pleasure and satisfaction um, that wasn't that is just unexpected that might be like oh I'm receiving a real sense of deep connectedness and uh, listening to a friend's story about a, you know something that happened to them and I'm just um, completely connecting with them and that unexpected um, that unexpected satisfaction shows up I'm going to check in and see the time is like um that's gone by very quickly. It's already 11.48, so I'll see if we can again see if there's questions or shares here. Yeah, I'd like to hear more about how your intimacy with deities, how, how that, that works for you. Yeah. That's um, not too intrusive. No, and I, 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 I'm only hesitant because it's a relatively new practice for me. I've only a couple of years, and so I feel like not something that I'm, you know, that is in the realm of what I teach. You know, it's something I've just been exploring as a practitioner. And so I'll say in particular, I practice a lot with Lama Rod Owens through his um, community. It's called Bumis Barsha, um, which is the Sanskrit word for touching the earth. Um, so in particular, you know, through his, he guides um, medicine Buddha practice and green Tara practice. And what I've noticed, at first I was just like, I don't understand this, what's going on here? <laughs> but through the continued cultivation of these practices, um, I have noticed like a deep connection that has, that has um, arisen for me, in particular with Green Tara. Um, that's kind of the deity I find most accessible. And so there's a way now in through mantra practice or visualization practice that I can bring up Green Tara 
um, who's an embodiment of compassion in action. So you can see her over on the um, altar over here. There's green Tara and white Tara. Green Tara sits with one leg bent and the other one forward. So she's ready to leap into action. That's her, the way she shows up. And then you'll see white Tara on the right is sitting in the full lotus. Um, They're both an embodiment of compassion, but green Tara is ready to leap to whoever needs compassion at any moment. So just been connecting with this, this um, with Green Tara as this quality of compassion, and so they imagine like Green Tara just radiating compassion to me. But then also part of the practice is imagining myself as Green Tara radiating compassion to the world. Um, it's a very embodied for me. It's a very embodied practice. It's one in which actually receive a lot of love, like love, compassion, and care from Green Tara, and also feel like the embodiment of that within myself. It's almost like I feel like it's a kind of like a re-parenting practice, (laughs) you know, for all that I had really difficult, you know, kind of developmental experience where I didn't feel cared for, I didn't feel loved. I can almost like repopulate my own um, kind of like database of experiences through connecting with the deity as a very loving and caring presence that's available to me. So that's what I would share. And yeah. Other um, yeah. Well, again, Ty, you mentioned that the connection to the earth. I um, have family that lives in Salt Lake City, and I was there for Thanksgiving last two years ago. <coughs> I was helping to do the dishes, so I had the water on full blast, and my cousin came and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, You know, honey, you can turn the tack down a little bit and still do the dishes and just rinse them off. We're having a drought now in Salt Lake City and it'll help. And it really affected me. It really made me realize you're just using too much water to blast the dirt off the dishes and that with less water I can save that water. And then we had sort of drought here and I kind of brought that in my own personal life and infused lots of water. And I drink a lot of water, as we all probably drink water, and it made me conscious of that. And then I also have been peeing like we all do, and I've not been flushing after every time. And I mean, I was brought up as a good boy, and I do dishes, and I flush the toilet after. It's made me kind of conscious of utilizing water and being more aware of that. So yeah, that's one way I've. Beautiful. Yeah, and that's a great segue to one of the other things I wanted to share on, which is just um, the, actually, the precepts. I think of the precepts as being the ground for intimacy with ourselves, with others, with all of life. And so I brought this little book from Thich Nhat Hanh for a future to be possible, which is his little book on, um, on the five precepts. And I think... Um, in my own experience, 
So Thich Han talks about these as mindfulness trainings. You know, they're not rules for us to follow. We might not even agree with them. Um, I particularly disagree with the way that Thich Nhat Hanh holds the third precept around sexuality, where he holds that any sexuality needs to be within a long-term committed relationship. I don't happen to agree with that. So, but I can still be fully engaged with the precept and the questions of how do I hold my own sexuality in a way that is... Um, is actually like nourishing and generative to myself and others and isn't causing harm. Um, and I hold that that can happen within multiple intimate relationships. It doesn't have to be within a you know, monogamous committed relationship. Um, and so just that engagement with that you're describing around the water, engaging with the earth and what do I need to do to be in good relationship with the earth I think like the precepts are such a rich area of practice where we can really be bringing those questions into our daily lives. And, you know, we don't, um, again, coming from a culture that tends to be more around rules and, you know, the Christian commandments and, um, you know, being law-abiding and all of these things, it's very different to engage with our ethic, with these ethical questions, or this practice of sila, as in using the Pali word, as this very active mindfulness practice, bringing our mindfulness to what the impacts of our choices may be, um, like the just engaging with the second precept of not taking not taking that which is not given, can be a really interesting inquiry in a world where we, you know. We all live and work on stolen land where we can't know that the things that we buy haven't been, um, haven't been like made with coerced labor. Like there's just so many things that we don't know. It's so hard to engage with these questions, but also so rich. And um, kind of think of this practice of sila when when it's new to us it might almost be like kind of waking up a limb that's fallen asleep mm. you know and when that limb wakes up it's quite uncomfortable but it's because the aliveness and sensation is coming back into it you know so um i know for me in the beginning of this practice it felt very uncomfortable and now it feels like oh this is part of how i am in relationship with all of life and able to have more intimacy when I know that I'm tending to that relationship, like I'm caring for that relationship. So I really appreciate what you're bringing in. Um, we're coming right to the end. I think I have time for like one quick share and then we should move to the dedication of merit. All right, well, let's go ahead and um, there's any announcements and then dedication of merit. Beginning with the fact that we're a nonprofit, uh, all volunteer organization, uh, and we rely on your generosity to keep our rent and Zoom equipment and uh, honorariums and a long list of things going. Uh, so please generate or <clears throat> be generative and uh, give us uh, between ten and twenty dollars if you can, or more, or whatever you can. Uh, and next week's speaker is 
Serdan Funra, an American Kadampa Buddhist monk. He's been ordained for 17 years and been practicing more than 22 years. Uh, he's a wonderful man who lives in Eugene and continues to live his vegan and minimalist lifestyle, sharing a warm, kind of heart and joyful attitude. But thank you, Renee. And would you like to do our dedication of marriage? Sure. I, I have an announcement. Oh, yeah. I'm the host today. <laughs> oh, yes. So, please stay and enjoy the company of the Sangha. There are refreshments and hot water for tea. Um, if you use a cup, uh, just put it in the sink and I'll take care of it. And and I'll be the, going around with the Donna Bowl to accept contributions to cover our expenses. And Jeff already went through the list of things that we use the uh, Donald for. There's a newcomer's sign-up sheet on the credenza. <clears throat> if you wish to be included and receive our Saga membership directory, please sign up and include contact information you wish to share with the group. And some members go out for lunch after the meeting. Everyone is welcome to join. Uh, the group meets at the front door around 12.30. I want to just add, we have also a Google group. Uh, the information is in the chat that I pasted there. You can go to our website. Uh, and the contact link underneath is, tells you how to join Google group, where we make the most announcements and regular uh, goings on. And donation, there's a click for donating online too. Yes, that's a game of So, thank you. And uh, let's all gather to dedicate for merit. Taking a moment to feel our feet on the floor, feel the connection with the earth. We feel the connection that is running through our hands around the circle of beloved community. So recognizing all the goodness that we've created in our time together today, through our practice, through our conversation and inquiry, through turning towards the intimacy of our practice. May all of this benefit be gathered up and offered to the world. May it be offered to ourselves, our community, offered to all of those who our lives touch and those who are touched by our communities and sending these, this merit out all around the world for all who are suffering in isolation, in conflict, in oppressive regimes or policies those who might be incarcerated or institutionalized. May the merit that we have created bring ease and peace and a freedom from suffering. 
sending out our good wishes to ourselves and all beings. May we all be free from suffering. May we be protected and safe. May we be well in body, mind, and spirit as much as is possible. May we be cared for and may all our needs be met. May we find peace and ease. And may all beings everywhere be free. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.